We'll be doing lesson two this morning, and if you haven't received your book, the bookstore is right around the corner, so that would be helpful. Let's begin at the throne of grace, shall we? Our Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day where we can come together as the body of Christ to glorify and honor our exalted head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great commission that you've given us to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, and to take his message throughout the world. And Father, it's our prayer this morning that your word and your spirit would encourage us and equip us to be faithful servants for the Lord Jesus. We know there is a lost and dying world that needs to hear the gospel. We thank you for the privilege of representing you to take the gospel to those who have not heard it yet or who may have heard it but have rejected it. So we pray you'd bless our time. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this is lesson two. I would like to begin by going back over lesson one. We thank Charlie for the excellent way he kicked off this eight-week series last week. If you weren't here, then you'll have an opportunity to see what we covered. To begin with, the requirements for the class is to attend each class and complete the homework each week. So it's good not to be behind on this, but each week try to do the homework Also, we need to memorize the gospel presentation. We started on that last week, the attributes of God. You'll find those at the back of your lesson book. We also encourage you to read What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, and that's available in the bookstore as well. And lastly, the assignment last week was to pray for three unbelievers and look for an opportunity to sit down and go through the gospel with them. How many of you had a chance to do that last week? Okay, well, you're already behind, most of you, so let's make sure we get that done this coming week, because we also have a second assignment for us to do this week in your book. So let's review lesson one. That was the foundations of biblical evangelism. We looked at the mission, the motivation, the message, and also the method of sharing the gospel with those who are lost. So what is the mission? God's ultimate purpose is to be glorified. In fact, he is to be glorified in everything that we do, everything that we say. Our ultimate purpose on this earth is to glorify our great God. We know that salvation accomplishes God's mission to bring himself glory. I hope you realize this. Every time you share the gospel, you are bringing glory to our great God and Savior. If a person rejects the gospel, or if all you've done is move them along until the next gospel presentation, each time you give the gospel, you are bringing glory to our great God and Savior. And so that should be an encouragement to us. We have to recognize that evangelism is such that you're not going to see a whole lot of fruit. In fact, I've been doing this for 32 years, and probably four out of five times, nine out of ten times, we don't see people come to faith in Christ. But we are called to sow the seed of God's Word. Maybe it's uh, the next person that comes along that will see the increase. Salvation is about making worshipers 
when God turns idolaters into true worshipers of the one true and living God. Remember the Lord Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, but he did it for the glory of God. And so our motivation is to reach out to those who are perishing, but also recognize that if they do come to faith, they will be singing God's praises and glorifying God throughout all eternity. That's the ultimate goal in evangelism, is to turn idolaters into worshipers. Evangelism exists because worship does not. So the motivation, believers are motivated by their love for God. If we love God, we will obey him. And the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. It's not go and make decisions, is it? Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. So as we make disciples, we are giving them the gospel. Love for God expresses itself in obedience, of which evangelism is a part. Love for God expresses itself in love for others. That should be our motivating factor. Yes, we obey God because of our love for him, but how much do you love those who are perishing? How much compassion do you have those who are outside of Christ? If you don't have that love for the lost and the fact that you're here, I'm sure that you do, but many people just don't care about the lost. And may God give them a, a greater love and a greater compassion for those who are outside of Christ if we obey God, we will glorify him, and what a great way we can do that by showing his attributes through the gospel. The motivations to labor in the fields, white for harvest, number one, it glorifies our great God and Savior. It is a divine command. It's not a divine option. It's not a divine suggestion. There are some Christians that believe that evangelism is only for those who have been gifted with the gift of evangelism. No, evangelism is for the body of Christ. Each individual Christian has been commanded by God to take his gospel throughout the world. It's also a royal privilege. Every Christian is an ambassador to the King of Kings. And what greater privilege do we have than to represent him by sharing his gospel? Think about in the political sense, the greatest privilege uh, an American could have outside of being president would be as an ambassador for our country to another foreign nation. We are ambassadors to the king of kings, a high privilege, an awesome responsibility. Another motivation that demonstrates our love, as we see in John 14, 15, and it's a mark of true conversion. In Acts chapter 4, they could not stop speaking about the Lord who saved them. What is the message of the gospel? We're going to look at the first two parts of the message this morning. God's perfection, he is holy. Man's problem, he is a sinner. God's provision, a glorious savior. And man's part is to repent and believe the gospel. We've handed out the greatest news ever told about the greatest gift ever given. The reason I love this track is because it is all Scripture. And what I did in this track is I took not only the first four parts, but added two more. And that is, 
after you do God's perfection, man's problem, God's provision, then you go into God's promise, and that is eternal, everlasting life. And then the sixth P, man's privilege. We have the privilege, once we are born again, to serve the king. So this is an excellent outline for you to share as you're witnessing to those, and you can also leave this behind. We really believe in literature, evangelism, gospel tracts, because after you give the message audibly, you can leave the gospel in printed form so that they can go back over what they have heard from you. So the gospel proclaims God's holiness. Exodus 15, 11, our eternal creator is majestic in holiness. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. We really need to make sure we emphasize God's holiness. He is a righteous judge, and he cannot let the guilty go unpunished. Oftentimes when I witness, I let people know that God is so holy and such a righteous judge that every sin that's ever been committed by every man and woman that has ever lived must be punished by a holy and righteous judge. And God punishes sin in one of two places, either at Calvary's cross or divine justice is satisfied for those who trust Christ as their substitute, their sin is paid for there, or for those who reject Christ, one day they will meet him at the great white throne and their sin will be punished when they hear the most terrifying words anyone could ever hear, depart from me, I never knew you, and they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. Divine justice must be satisfied. That should awaken those who believe that they can suppress the truth about God and call him a loving God who would never send anyone to hell. So God's holiness is so important. The gospel reveals man's sinful condition. The Bible teaches that there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And one of our memory verses, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. James 2.10. The soul whose sin shall die, Ezekiel 18.4. The lake of fire is the second death. The gospel declares Christ as Savior and Lord. Oh, we can talk so much about the Lord Jesus. He is God's eternal Son. He left the glory of heaven to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin to take on human flesh. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law then was crucified as the perfect sacrifice to satisfy divine justice for all sinners who put their trust in him. He bore man's sin, suffered God's wrath, died in man's place, and was raised on the third day to show divine justice was satisfied. What a glorious Savior we have to proclaim in Christ Jesus. The gospel calls sinners to repent and believe in Christ, 2 Corinthians 7.10 shows us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And then Romans 10.9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And lastly, the gospel proclaims God himself as the great end of the gospel. God's chief end in salvation is his own glory. We see that in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Everyone who has been born again will be trophies of God's amazing grace in heaven. Everyone will be singing his praises throughout all eternity, and that is the motivation for the gospel. The sinner's greatest benefit in salvation is God himself. So the method, live a transformed life, Maintain a lifestyle of prayer. Present the gospel with wisdom and innocence. Rely on scripture as the supreme authority. The supreme authority. There is no greater authority that we have on this earth for knowing the truth than the word of God. It is our only infallible source for knowing truth. And so one of the principles I hope you will leave here with is that we must encourage those we're witnessing to to test the uninspired words of men with the inspired word of God. Why would you trust your eternal destiny on the uninspired words of men when you can trust your destiny on the inspired word of God? That is so critical as we share the gospel. So many people will want to turn to their tradition or to their favorite pastor or theologian. No, every man's teaching must be tested with the authority of God's word. And we see that so clearly demonstrated in Acts 17, 11, when the apostle Paul was preaching in the synagogues of Berea. As he was teaching, he noticed they were searching the scriptures daily to test the veracity of an apostle's teaching. So if an apostle comes under the scrutiny of God's word, Shouldn't every other teacher that we have come under the same scrutiny? Maintain a lifestyle of prayer. You know, your assignment last week was to write three names down and begin praying for them. I hope you have a list of your unsaved family members, friends, co-workers, that you pray for them weekly. Pray for divine appointments. Pray that God would open their hearts to receive the gospel with gladness and joy. There's so much we can say about prayer, but the word of God must go forth and the spirit of God must bring illumination and conviction. So that's why we pray. We pray for open hearts. We pray for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and illumination. So the question then is, why is Scripture the supreme authority? I think Hebrews 4.12 gives us a good answer. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, we can use the word of God to slay every lie of the devil. Every lie under the sun can be exposed and corrected using the word of God.
It pierces. It penetrates and cuts to the depths of the soul, and it never returns void. That simply means when we proclaim the word of God, it will bring salvation to those who repent and believe it, but it brings further condemnation for those who reject it. But it always accomplishes its purpose. It judges. Before anyone can be saved, their sin must be judged by the word of God. It is the word of God that we point people to as the judgment for their sin. In fact, Jesus said in John 12, 48, the word that you're rejecting is the word that will judge you on the last day. The word of God is living and active. It can bring life to those who are spiritually dead. Peter talked about the word of God being the imperishable seed that brings forth life. So as we sow the seed of God's word, we know that when it finds fertile soil, God will produce the increase. It has divine power. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe it. And it is the inspired word of God, and we can use it to reprove and correct error, as we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. So that's the review of last week. Now we'll get into the lesson for this week, the gospel presentation part one. I shared just briefly, but remember, as we share the gospel, as we sow the seed of God's word, one of the things we're doing is we're moving people along toward the ultimate goal, which is to be born again through the word of God and the spirit of God. And although we sometimes we may not see the fruit, if we sow the seed of God's word, if we present the scriptures, then maybe at a future gospel presentation, we can go through more scriptures with them. Or ultimately, we see in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God was giving the growth. And so we may be doing the planting of the seed. Someone else may come along later and water, and they may see the fruit. So don't be discouraged when you don't see the fruit when you sit down with people. Move them along. Remember, there's four kinds of soil, right? As you're sowing the seed of God's word, it may fall on the roadside, and the road is so thick it will not penetrate the soil, or it may fall on rocky soil where there is no root, or it may fall on thorny soil. It may appear to be alive for a while, but eventually the thorns will choke it out. But then there's that fertile soil. We don't know where the fertile soil is, so we keep sowing the seed wherever we go. Some of you who follow golf may know the name Bruce Litsky. I had the privilege, my wife and I, of sitting down with Rose Litsky, his wife, and sharing the gospel. She was a very devout Roman Catholic, and for three hours we just sowed the seed. And I remember at the end of the three hours she said, how can I have the same joy and the same peace that you and your wife have? And I said, there's only one way, and that's to know your eternal destiny. That's to know that Christ is your Savior, that you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith in him alone. And so I showed her Romans 10, 9, and 10 that we just looked at. She cried out to the Lord for salvation. And then she said, what am I going to do? I've just been named fundraiser at All Saints Catholic Church. My son is an altar boy. I can never go back there. I need to go tell the priest, would you come with me? 
I said, not only will I come, but I would really hope that you would take me because I was uh, aware of the four soils. I didn't want her one-on-one with a Roman Catholic priest that would come and pluck away the seed that was sown. And so I went with her. We walked in. I introduced myself to the priest, and I got right to the point. I said, can you tell Rose how she has any hope of going to heaven? And he articulated the Roman Catholic plan of salvation. You have to be baptized. She has to receive the sacraments. She has to do good works. She has to obey the law. She has to attend the sacrifice of the Mass. I saw a Bible on his desk, and I said, could you open it to Romans? I want to ask you to read a couple of verses. And so after he did, I said, how are you going to reconcile what God has just said with what you told Rose on her salvation? Well, now he knew why I was there. He said, this meeting is over. I said, no, there's nothing more important than settling this woman's eternal destiny. So for the next 15 minutes, he tried to reconcile the book of Romans with what he had shared on the Catholic plan of salvation. And each time he said something, I lovingly corrected him with the word of God. Well, you could just see he was getting so frustrated, steam was rising from his collar. And after 15 minutes, he threw up his hands and said, look, I don't have the authority to interpret the word of God on my own. We rely on the bishops of the church. This meeting is over. We walked out of his office, and I opened my Bible to 2 Corinthians 4.2, and I said, look, Rose, Paul presents the truth plainly to every man's conscience in the sight of God. God didn't write the Bible to the bishops so they could interpret it for us. We will all be held accountable for what the Word of God teaches. She said, oh, I know, I can never go back to this church. Here was a man with a collar on. He couldn't even explain how to get to heaven. Well, you know what Rose did when she went home? She put together 17 three-ring binders with all the scriptures. And my wife and I shared with her that afternoon, and we shared with her before the priest, and she sent them out to her family members. You know, that is the mark of true conversion. When you have been made alive in Christ. You think first of your loved ones that are still outside of Christ, and you want them to know the truth. So the glorious gospel of Christ, it is the greatest news anyone could ever hear because it speaks of the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. When you show sinners that they are on death row, the greatest news that they could ever hear is to know that a substitute came to die in their place. The gospel is exclusive. There is no other way. The gospel is also according to Scripture. It is the power of God, as we saw in Romans 1.16. It is by grace alone. Oh, how important is this? Paul said in Romans 11.6, If it is by grace, it is not of works. Otherwise, grace is not grace. Satan knows this. So he has created all of these religions that all teach a works righteousness salvation because he knows that if you add works to grace, it nullifies the only way God will save you. Biblical Christianity is set apart from all the religions of the world. We have an all-sufficient Savior, and we can offer salvation by God's grace alone. It is eternal. It is the eternal gospel. Everybody in heaven will be there because they believe the one and only eternal gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it must not be distorted. We see that in Galatians 1, 6 to 9. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. We must deliver it as the scriptures reveal it. So that's the glorious gospel of Christ. And it divides all of humanity into one of two categories. Believers are alive in Christ. Unbelievers are spiritually dead. Believers are under God's grace. Unbelievers are under God's wrath. Believers are destined for heaven. Unbelievers are destined for hell. Believers are forgiven and justified. Unbelievers stand guilty and condemned before a holy God. Believers are empowered by the Spirit. Unbelievers are controlled by the flesh. Believers are set free by Christ. Unbelievers are in bondage to sin. They're also in bondage to the devil. We see that in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. We are to pray for those outside of Christ that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. Believers are children of God. Unbelievers are enemies of God and also children of the devil. What a contrast between those two groups of humanity. When you share what an unbeliever is, and you would wonder why anyone would want to remain an unbeliever. So let's look at the gospel presentation. Since it is important to begin with the person and character of God, a good question to ask is how would you describe God? I was out yesterday and came across a, a woman from Jordan. And I'm familiar with the country of Jordan. There's quite a few Christians there. And so I asked her if she was a Christian, and she said, yes, I'm an Orthodox. And I said, well, how does your church teach you have any hope of going to heaven? She said, well, you have to be good. I said, that is a lie of the devil. Nobody can get to heaven by their good works because you can never do enough good works to get to heaven. You know what she said? Well, how then can I get to heaven? Wow. <laughs> Talk about a divine appointment. So I said, well, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners and the punishment for sin is death. We not only die physically, but we die spiritually, eternally because of sin. She said, well, how can anybody get to heaven then? <laughs> can you believe this? Well, that's why God sent his son, the Lord Jesus. He didn't leave us in our helpless and hopeless condition. He sent a savior to die as a substitute for sinners. He took upon the punishment we, we deserve. And that's not all the good news. He also gives us his righteousness, which is our only passport into heaven. You see, she had a God of a different variety. She had a God of her own imagination, a God that says you can work your way to heaven. So I gave her a gospel track and encouraged her to visit our website and call me if she had any questions. But what a, what a glorious opportunity to share the gospel. So as we look at the gospel presentation, you can follow along in your workbook now. God is the creator and owner of everything. Why is it important that we show that God is the creator and owner of everything? 
Brian. He has the right to make demands on all of his creation. Anyone else want to add to that? Why is it important to show that God is creator? He has authority. He has authority. And ultimately, since he is creator, we are all held accountable to our creator, right? I often say that one day we are going to stand before our creator we're all going to have to give an account. And one day he will, as we stand before him, he will either be a merciful savior or a sin-avenging judge. But one day we will all meet our creator. We've got to get their attention. Man is accountable to his creator and will have to give an account on judgment day. As creator, God is the ultimate authority the unbeliever's problem is a rejection of his authority and rebellion against his law. One of our memory verses is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, science tells us that all things can be reduced to five categories. And I find this amazing that in the very first verse in the Bible, we see all five things. In the beginning is time. God is the force. Created is the action. He created the heavens, which is space, and the earth, which is matter. So everything in this world, according to science, can be reduced to these five categories Time, force, action, space, and matter. John 1, 3, all things come into being from him. In 1 Corinthians 10, 26, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. God has the right to do whatever he wants with what is his. The person of God is revealed in creation we see that in Psalm 19.1. What a beautiful verse to memorize. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. I hope you realize there are really no atheists in this world. They're only fools. That's what the Bible describes them. But you see, God has revealed himself through creation. And so what atheists or fools do is they suppress the truth of God. They know that God exists. They just suppress it. And that's why they're called fools. Scripture teaches that God has made himself evident to all mankind in general revelation. We see that in Romans verses one, Romans chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that 
they are without excuse. How often, as you have witnessed to someone, do they bring up the man in Africa? Well, what about the guy that never gets to hear the gospel? What about him? You know what they're doing? They're deflecting the attention away from themselves. They want you to talk about someone else. And that's what I tell them. We'll talk about the man in Africa later. Let's talk about you right now because you're being held accountable to your creator. Eternal power exists in our almighty God for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, in him, all things hold together. This is a specific statement of God's never-failing power over all things. We also see his divine nature in Matthew 5.45, God's grace to all men. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We have to reveal the person of God as he is revealed in creation. And then we look at the law of God. It's revealed in man's conscience. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, God inscribed his law on each man's conscience. Let's read Romans 2, 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. We see some illustrations, don't we, in Scripture? How about Cain, who murdered and then lied about it in Genesis 4, 9? How about Joseph, who refused adultery of Potiphar's wife? This was before the law of Moses was even given, and yet their conscience revealed the law of God. Guilt is activated when man sins and man flees temptation, when conscience is pricked. The conscience is an alarm system designed to warn you against danger, to keep you from breaking God's law. It is a guard against sin, not a guide through life. It is designed to warn you against danger, to keep you from breaking God's law. But we also know that the conscience activates on the level of good that it knows. Since God inscribed his law in each person's conscience, guilt is activated when people sin. This is why unbelievers instinctively know that it is wrong to steal, murder, lie, and commit adultery. For example, guilt is incurred when the conscience is violated. And the conscience can be programmed. Your response to the warnings determines the conscience effectiveness. If you ignore the feelings of guilt and conviction, you will nullify its warnings and eventually silence it altogether. 
good example is given in 1 Timothy 4.2. But on the other hand, your conscience may be informed with standards that are stricter than God established in Scripture. This is why it is vital for believers to saturate our minds with biblical knowledge to train a sound conscience, one that neither goes beyond nor stops short of God's command. You probably see that as legalism. Some of you may have come out of legalistic churches. They go beyond what the Lord and the Word of God commands. Unsaved people value such qualities as justice, honesty, compassion, and goodness, yet they also instinctively know it is wrong to lie, cheat, and kill. Where do unsaved men get such a value system? It's simply a reflection of the divine law that is written on their hearts. We see that God is perfectly holy, and what does that mean? Charlie covered that last week. He is set apart from the human race, and that is he is without sin. He is completely good, he's pure, and he's perfect. And then the command by God is, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5.48. It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16. This is so important to share when we witness to people. God is holy, and he expects that of us. It's such an answer to those who think they can be good enough. God requires perfection. How are you doing with that? Have you been perfect? And then I like to share at this point that God knows that we can never be perfect. He knows that we can never be holy. It's the direction we're pursuing, not the perfection, because in this life we can never obtain perfection. So what does God do? He promises the gift of his son's righteousness to those who repent and believe in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains it so beautifully. We see there that he became sin for us. He took upon all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment. And what does he give us in return? The gift of his perfect righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of Christ is our only passport into heaven. We must stress that. So often, people believe they can be good enough. God requires perfect obedience to his law. Since God created us, he sets the standard by which we are to live. Our memory verse is James 2.10. If you were able to keep the whole law perfectly and yet stumble at just one small part, you have become guilty of breaking the entire law. We must instruct people to trust the God of the Bible, not the God of their own imagination or religious tradition. Oh, how many times have I heard, my God is a God of love and he would never send anyone to hell. 
How would you answer that? Point them to the cross. God did not spare his own son who became sin for us. What hope do you have that God will spare you if he would not spare his own son? Justice must be satisfied. That's why Christ went to the cross. Oftentimes when you witness to people of different religions, you're going to find that they have a God that is a different God from the God that is gloriously revealed in Scripture. The Muslims have a very impersonal God. The Buddhists, Roman Catholics, Mormons. You know, Mormons teach that Jesus was a man who became God, and we can follow in his footsteps. We too can become God. And so it's important as we witness to those who have a different God to ask them about the God that they worship. A good question. You know, as we witness... Unbelievers don't want to be preached at. We have to have a balanced conversation. One of the most effective ways to do that is to ask people questions. Find out where they are spiritually. Find, about, find out about the God that they worship, the God that they trust. Find out about themselves. <clears throat> when we look at God's holiness and justice, righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his throne. Psalm 97, 2 Divine justice must be satisfied for every sin ever committed. Nahum 1.3, God will not leave the guilty unpunished. A holy and righteous God must punish every sin. Divine justice must be satisfied. One of the questions I love to ask as I witness to people is, why did Jesus have to die? You'd be surprised at the answers you get. Some will say because he loved us. Well, that was his motivation, but why did he have to die? Some will say because of our sin. But why did he have to die for our sin? They don't know the punishment for sin is death. That's why Jesus went to the cross to die. Divine justice must be satisfied and then I explained that there's three different kinds of death in the Bible. Death is separation, right? So when you die physically, your body is separated from your soul. When you die spiritually, you are separated from God. And when you die eternally, which is the third death, then you die eternally separated from God. But divine justice must be satisfied. So that's good to remember that when we talk about God's attributes... Everybody wants to talk about his love, mercy, and grace. But we also talk about his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice. Mm -hmm. So the gospel presentation regarding man, everyone has broken God's law. How would you define sin? I think it's important as we witness to people to ask them, how would you define sin? Well, the biblical definition is it's disobedience against God. It's refusing to do what God commands, but also it's not doing what God forbids. 
there are sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Everyone has broken God's law. The consequence for sin is separation from God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, Isaiah 59.2. The wages of sin is death. The soul who sins will die. We will all spend eternity in one of two places, either in the glories of heaven in the presence of God or separated from God in the fires of hell. I want to just um, make you aware, as you witness to Roman Catholics, it's so important to share Romans 6.23 and Ezekiel 18.4. Roman Catholicism has two different categories of sin. They have mortal sin, the soul that sins will die, but they also have what are called venial sins, and those are considered lesser sins that do not cause death, only temporal punishment in a place called purgatory. So Roman Catholics feel very confident that their baptism saved them, and all they're doing in this life is committing temporal sins, so they're not really concerned about spending eternity in hell. I call this the trilogy of deception. It all started in the garden. Remember what the serpent told Eve? You surely shall not die if you break God's command. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has perpetuated the lie of the devil in the garden with its doctrine of venial sin. So now that you have this first lie, you surely shall not die, now you need a place where people go that do not die. They created another lie called purgatory. That's where you go to have your venial sins purged away by the fires. Well, now that you have the first lie, you will not die in a place where you go for temporal punishment. Now you need a way to get them out. So that goes to a third lie, the lie of indulgences. And so Catholics are told that your loved ones can purchase indulgences to get you out of this temporal place of purgation called purgatory. And that was one of the sparks of the Reformation, the selling of God's grace through indulgences. The trilogy of deception, venial sin, you surely shall not die. Purgatory where venial sins are purged and indulgences where temporal punishment is reduced. It is so deceptive, but yet God's word exposes the lies of the devil, and we can use his word to correct the lies of the devil. So one must trust the God of the Bible. Sin taints all of our works, thoughts, and actions. Good works and good intentions cannot save anyone Sin taints all of our thoughts, words, actions, and intentions. No human judge would allow anyone on death row to go free because of good behavior. It's a good thing to bring up. You're on death row. How is your good deeds going to get you off death row? It'll never happen. What you need is to find a substitute, someone that has not sinned that would die in your place. There's only one candidate. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, this is another reason to remind people that 
Their good works are all tainted by sin. Our best intentions are still tainted by sin. That's why Isaiah, prophet Isaiah said, before our justification, all of our good deeds are but filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Well, next week we will look at parts three and four of the gospel presentation, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and man's response. But before we close today, let's look at the nature of man, the nature of the one that we're witnessing to, what every believer has as far as characteristics. The Bible says unbelievers are born enslaved to sin, Psalm 51.5 and Romans 6.20. We're not only born enslaved to sin, we're born separated from God. By the way, we don't become sinners when we sin. We become sinners at conception. We are born in sin. We're born sinners. Oftentimes, I encourage people to be spiritual physicians. What does a physician do? He gives you the true diagnosis. We have to tell people their true diagnosis is they inherited a fatal disease. The fatal disease is called sin. We have to tell them there's more bad news. There's no human cure for the fatal disease that you inherited at birth. But the good news is there is a divine cure, and it's available free for the asking because of a love story written in blood on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. Everybody in this world that was born was born with this fatal disease, and God provided only one cure. It is the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you take the cure, you will die in your sin and spend eternity apart from God. We're all born spiritually dead, separated from God. We stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. Romans 5.18, every unbeliever is under God's wrath. And Romans 5, 6, and 9 tells sinners that they are hopelessly lost and helpless to do anything about it. So as you look at the nature of man, the person that you are witnessing to, it is no wonder that the apostles asked the Lord Jesus, who then can be saved? The natural man cannot see the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. They are spiritually blind. But you know, there's good news if you back up one chapter and show them 2 Corinthians 3.16. That veil of blindness that covers your heart remains until you turn to Christ. If you turn from your rabbi or your imam or your priest and you turn to Christ and seek the truth from him, the promise is the veil will be removed. The natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. The natural man does not seek after the true God. No one seeks after God, no, not one. Oh, the natural man will seek after a God of his own imagination but no one seeks after the true God. 
That's why Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Because no one seeks after God. And you know, the Lord Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he passed the baton to his church. He said, now you go and complete my mission. Now you go seek after those who will never seek after the true God. The natural man cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. John 6, 44. You know, the Greek word there is actually to drag. We have to, God has to drag the natural man against his will to come to Jesus. The same word is used when Paul and Barnabas were drugged before the magistrate. The same word is used to draw fish into the boat. The fish don't want to come into the boat. They must be drugged against their will. So when you look at the natural man, it's no wonder then the apostles asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Do you remember the Lord's answer? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the one who gives man life. God is the one who draws men to Jesus. God is the one who heals man's spiritual blindness. God is the one who grants repentance. He's also the one that grants faith. True living faith comes from God. So I hope this doesn't discourage you, but encourage you to pray. Pray that the sovereign Lord would draw people to himself. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open hearts that you're witnessing to. Pray that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction of sin, of judgment, of the righteousness needed for heaven. Pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the word of God that you're sharing to their heart. Prayer is so important as we witness for the Lord. We need to use the law for the conviction of sin. Before anyone is a candidate for salvation, the law must bring them knowledge of sin and condemnation under God's wrath. Les and I were witnessing to a couple of Muslims in South Lake Town Square a couple of weeks ago. One of the Muslim women said that she never sinned. She needed to understand from the Word of God what sin is. I almost wanted to tell her, if you've never sinned, that puts you on the same level of Christ. Jesus is the only one who never sinned. That's, one, that's why he could become a sinless substitute for you. Before anyone can be saved, the law must judge them of their sin. The law was given so that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. Romans 3.19, no one is righteous, no, not even one. We must tell people the truth, what awaits them when they die without Christ. You know, the Lord Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven because he came to save people from hell. And the Bible has much to say about what awaits those who die without Christ. I think if more people had a clear understanding of what awaits those who die without Christ, we would do everything that we could to rescue people before they die. Listen to how the Bible describes hell. 
It's a place of punishment where the wages of sin are paid. It is the place of despair and desperation. It is called the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It is a place of terrible torture, dreadful agony, soul-wracking remorse. Hope never enters there. Light never shines there. Only pain and gloom and restless agony, indescribable torment. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. This is why we are motivated to rescue those outside of Christ for the glory of God, to save them from this horrible punishment that awaits them. We know what evangelism is. Let me share with you what it is not. It is not imposing your beliefs. We are sharing the truth from God's word, his gospel. Evangelism is not using your words. Your words have no authority. Your words have no power. Use the word of God that has ultimate authority over all things, and it has the power to bring forth life. Evangelism is not giving the good news without the bad news. I hope you realize that. Evangelism is not getting people to accept Jesus. Please don't use that. You won't find it in the Bible. We're calling people to trust Jesus, to put their faith in him, to believe upon him and what he has accomplished. Accepting Jesus doesn't save anyone. When a person tells me they accepted Jesus, I said, have you trusted him? When did you believe in him? Getting people to repeat a prayer doesn't save anyone. The only prayer you see in the New Testament is the publican weighted down by his sin. He cried out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. No one had to lead him in a prayer. There's so many false converts that have come into the church because a well-meaning evangelist asked them to repeat a prayer. How do you know if that person has really understood the gospel? How do you know that they're going to honor God with their lips, but their hearts are still far from him? No, when a person has been following you, has been asking good questions, that you sense that they've understood the gospel, ask them, what is keeping you from trusting the Lord Jesus Christ right now? If they're truly convicted, if they're truly illuminated with the gospel, they're going to say, what do I need to do? Let God answer the question for them. Take them to Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Take them to Mark 1, 15. Obey the first command of our Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. You're going to hear people pray the most beautiful prayers. We shared this with a woman down in Laredo. She asked, what do I need to do? We shared the scriptures. She bowed her head said, Lord Jesus, thank you for sending these people to tell me the truth about you, and thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place to save me. It all just came from her heart. Evangelism is not giving people assurance. Please understand that. It's the promise of the gospel, but you don't know if they've repented and believed the gospel. Assurance comes from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. 
And evangelism is not arguing with unregenerate people. Keep presenting the scriptures. Yes, answer their objections with the word of God. So I hope this has been helpful for all of you. What we'd like to do now is to break into small groups. And we've got Les. Les, raise your hand. And Charlie. We've also got Jimmy Aiken. And uh, let's see, who else do we have? Oh, myself and Jacob. We've got five different people. So Jacob over there. So... um, I'll, I'll sit over at this table, and maybe Charlie, you or Les can move over to another table, but meet with one of the f- five people that I just had designated as group leaders and talk about the lesson today, talk about who you witnessed to last week, talk about your memory verses, and also uh, talk about any questions you might have, any comments about the lesson today. So before we do, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. What a glorious Savior you have given us to proclaim. Father, I pray as we break into small groups that we would all be encouraged to take your message to those who are perishing. Father, I even pray for the loved ones that are represented by everyone here this morning that you would give us opportunities and open hearts that they would receive the message with gladness and joy. All for the glory of Christ and in the power of his name, amen.